Hello, and welcome to the No Longer Be Children podcast. I am your host, Josiah Meyer, and we are in pursuit of a mature and stable Christian worldview. And I just finished teaching um, a class on church history. Um, It was kind of church history one from Jesus up to the Reformation, just before the Reformation. Um, And I taught this in French. Uh, I'm uh, a missionary working out um, in Quebec, Canada, the most secular part of North and South America. Um, But I have the occasion, and I'm a campus pastor, so I do Bible studies on campus. But from time to time, I have the opportunity to teach at Bible schools or, uh, well, so far just Bible schools. I would teach elsewhere if they invited me. And uh, so I I taught this class in 10 hours. um, And because nobody ever talks about the silent years between uh, between the deportation to Babylon and Jesus, I thought, you know what, we ought to back this class up. And my first two hours of class were on preparation for Jesus. And then we talked about Jesus for two cl- for two hours. Then we talked about the Ni- anti-Nicene church for two hours, and the Nicene church for two hours, and the medieval church for two hours. And I thought, you know what, this would be fun to do as a podcast series. So I'm going to try and do about a 10-hour podcast series on the same material that I presented. Um, realistically speaking, it's probably going to end up stretched a little bit as I get to sections where I want to... Sp- want to dig down and take a little bit more time. But as much as possible, I'm going to try and keep it within the bounds of a 10-hour podcast. Um, And we're going to look really at what happened all the way between um, when the Israelites got back from Babylon and rebuilt the walls and rebuilt the temple, as you can read about in the Old Testament. What happened between there and Jesus? So that's what we'll talk about today. And then what happened between Jesus and... um, the Renaissance, uh, which which came right before the Reformation. So this first section here, I've divided it into two. I've just called it pre- um, preparation for Messiah, getting ready for for Messiah. Um, by the way, I'm going to be trying to teach this off of French notes, and I didn't take the time to translate it because I'm very busy. So um, it might come out a little bit French. <laughs> Oftentimes, a word works in French as well as in English, it just sounds a little bit awkward or the sentence structure might be a little bit different. Um, But uh, anyway, so preparation for Messiah, um, part one and two. So part one is the Greco-Roman world. So first of all, I want to just back up and look at what's happening big picture in the world. And actually, if you look at um, the sections in Daniel that talk about um, the vision that Nebuchadnezzar had about uh, the... um, the statue with a head of gold and, and shoulders of silver and and then bronze and iron. Um, and then the corresponding vision about the beasts that came up out of the ocean and the um, the ram with one horn. Um, if if you slow down and look at that, at those, um, those dreams and their interpretation, it'll actually give you a pretty good idea of what happened, the, the empires that happened in the world. Uh, between the Babylonian exile and um, and Jesus. So in general, um, the first world empire was Egypt, um, which really had dominance from around, I mean, from kind of the dawn of, uh, like kind of before writing was invented. So I don't know exactly when it started, but around 3200 before Christ, up to around 800 before Christ. And then Assyria really had an iron fist between 800 and 600 before Christ. Then Babylon came on the scene um, 
a much milder ruler, but still, um, you know, a very large and cruel and uh, world power from 600 to 522. And that's right towards the end of that is when the Israelites were deported. Um, well, the Israelites, the northern kingdom was deported to Assyria. Uh, Judea in the south was deported to Babylon. Uh, so it was right in, in between the, the dominance of Assyria and Babylon. Uh, Assyria is over in the west um, of the north and west of, of uh, Palestine, of Jerusalem, is at uh, modern-day Turkey. And then uh, Babylon is to the north and east. Um, so then there was Media Purse for 522 until, don't know exactly, but eventually it's more the, the Persian Empire that took dominance over the Media Persian Empire. And then 320 to 200 before Christ um, was the dominance of Greece, starting under Alexander the Great, and then it divided into his empire, his generals. And then Rome uh, from 200 up to uh, 475 after 200 before Christ to two, to 475 after Christ. Uh, so just briefly, those are the major empires uh, that have dominated our world. After Rome, um, there have been a, a succession of empires as well, although um, they didn't really... Uh, well, it's hard to say. There was something special about the ways... The way that empires really dominated the whole world beforehand. Uh, certainly, you know, the Ottoman Empire and then certain other empires later on were able to control a large portion of the world. But for a while, it was kind of like the entire world was dominated. The entire known world was dominated by one major culture. All right, so if we've got kind of a general outline here, let's zoom in. Uh, well, let's, let's kind of start at around... Um, 600 to 500 BC. That's about when the when uh, the Israelites got back from from Babylon. I have the precise date here, or the precise approximate date. Um, the Israelites got back from Babylon around 539 to 537 before Jesus Christ uh, BC, um, and so somewhere around that time is when we'll pick up the story with what was going on in the world. So. In the Greek culture, we had, um, there was various myths and there was, you know, um, people worshipped all sorts of gods. And it was very similar to a lot of different cultures where they had many different gods, many different spirits that they worshipped. Um, an important source for Greek culture was Homer, who wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, which we still read uh, sometimes today. I read them in high school. Um, and uh, it's just a long collection of poems that talk about mythology and uh, the Greek gods. Um, in uh, a, a previous podcast on Thales and then uh, uh, Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle, um, I talk really specifically about the formation of philosophy in Greece, uh, actually starting in Aeolia. Um, and uh, so... Obviously, because we're doing an overview, we can't dig quite as deep into that. But my first big bullet point here is 624 to 546 before Christ was uh, the life of Thales. That's when Thales lived. And Thales was the first person to come up with Greek philosophy. It was a different way of approaching the world. Um, we could look at that and kind of say it's the scientific way of looking at the world. That's 
that's anachronistic, that's us looking back at it and imposing our worldview. Um, but it'll get us close to understanding what he was doing. Obviously, there were myths, there were gods, there were temples, all this stuff existed. Um, but he said, how can we understand nature actually as it is? Um, putting aside any religious questions, but just how can we understand the world itself? And how can we think about thoughts themselves without bringing religion into it? Um, and so Thales was the first pre-Socratic philosopher, pre-Socratic meaning before Socrates. Um, and there's a whole line of them. And I talk about a few of them in uh, another podcast that you can look at. Um, but that was really starting at around 600 to 500 before Christ. 507 before Christ is a really big date because that is when democracy began uh, as a political system in Athens. Uh, the city of Athens had had a bad, <clears throat> a bad run of, uh, of rulers. They actually called their rulers tyrants. Um, that didn't mean that they were tyrannical. It just meant uh, that's just what they called them instead of, instead of kings. Um, and it just so happened that their run of tyrants was really, really bad. Um, and just at a certain point, and there were there were precursors to this. There were some philosophers that were saying, "Hey, we should have, we should have a different way of governing." But at a certain point, they just said, "Enough is enough." They took their tyrant out and killed him. Uh, and through this process, the word tyrant has kind of taken on a negative connotation, because for them, it just seemed like all their rulers were terrible. And they set up a system where they would govern themselves, uh, and it would be the people that would you know, get voted into office and then the certain servants of the people is what they called their rulers, um, would would then make the decisions. Uh, and so this was the, the beginning of democracy. And uh, 507 BC, Christianity didn't invent democracy. It was around before us. Sorry to burst your bubble. Um, and one of the big things that democracy did, I mean, among other things, it obviously has had a hugely transformative impact on on world culture one thing that it really did was it gave a huge boost to philosophy because uh, before uh, before democracy if you want to be in power um, you know you got born into a wealthy family or you were a general or you uh, got lots of money uh, these were the keys to success and power but after democracy sure some of these things really helped you know being born into a, a ruling family or having power, or having money, these things still helped you get elected. Um, but it really came down to you being able to express yourself, uh, having these debates and having public discourse, being able to stand up in front of a crowd and really, you know, make, convincing them to vote for you. And so uh, dialogue and discourse became a really value, highly valued skill in Athens. And so this kind of made Athens into a magnet. This was now, you know, there were philosophers around before this, but now you could actually make a good living as a philosopher. And so a lot of people started moving, a lot of philosophers started moving to Athens uh, to teach the um, aristocracy, the or people that wanted to be part of the aristocracy, because now it was open to anybody, um, how to speak and how to convince people that um, convince people to agree with you. Um, and so these people weren't always seen in a good light. Uh, the word sophistry uh, or sophist uh, comes from from this group of people, people that were just um, trying to train politicians how to speak. Uh, this was also the beginnings of um, 
what we would see as lawyers and as the legal, you know, official way of, of defending yourself in court. Um, and so there were, you know, there's this milieu of, of various philosophers in Athens um, and, and very democratic sort of a society. Uh, and on the scene comes Socrates, uh, born 470 and died 399. And Socrates kind of set himself apart from the other philosophers. For one thing, he wouldn't receive any pay. For another thing, he wasn't really working for the aristocracy. And for another thing, he was he was kind of a disturber of the peace in a way. He would um, he would just keep asking questions and keep asking questions and keep asking questions um, to make people think, to make people question, to make people um, it, it, you know destabilize people in in the ways that they were thinking. Um, and ultimately really digging down to what what is absolute truth? What is really right? What is really good? Um, and, uh, you know, we have the Socratic method, which is teaching through asking questions. Socratic, Socrates himself didn't seem to come to a lot of conclusions. He just really wanted to ask really deep probing questions. And ultimately, he asked so many questions. Um, this is hugely simplistic, but I have another podcast on Socrates that you can go see, Socrates and Plato that uh, he destabilized the wrong people who ended up killing him for his um, his philosophy and his um, his ideas. So both his life, because he lived, he was a soldier in the army, he, you know, served his people, um, he abstained from, you know, alcohol or from lavish lifestyle. So his life was exemplary, but his death was very exemplary because he could have just left. I mean, Athens didn't have authority outside the city gates. And so uh, when he was, you know, there was a warrant out for his arrest and things like this, like he could have just left. And then he was sitting there in prison. Everybody knew it was just because he had ticked off the wrong guy in, in politics. Um, and somebody came to free him from prison. And he said no, because he wanted to, uh, he said, well, if, if my people have condemned me to death, then I will die. Um, because he held the ideal of democracy up so high he was willing to die for it and to die for his his beliefs. So his his life and his death were exemplary and really inspired a whole generation of philosophers and Athenians. So his big, um, he had a number of disciples. If you can imagine, you know, he's just asking questions, you know, like uh, his one of his big dialogues um, is, I think it's the Phaedo, uh, if I can remember the name correctly, but somebody's going into a court and he says, why are you, what are you doing? He said, well, I need to um, bring a charge against my dad because he murdered somebody. And Socrates says, really, you're going to accuse your dad of murder? He said, yeah, well, what happened? Well, um, he got mad at one of his servants, tied him up in a ditch, beat him, tied him up in a ditch and left him there. And when he went to go untie him the next day, he was dead. So he killed this servant and he goes on. And then Socrates just keeps asking him questions, keeps asking him questions like, are you sure you're doing the right thing? What is good? Um, you know, he says, well, this is the right thing to do because it's good. Well, what is good? Uh, well, you know, good is not to kill somebody. Well, why is that a good thing not to kill? Well, because the gods have made us and well, why should we care what the gods think? You know, it goes on and on and on. Um, until you're left at the end of the book saying like, well, I don't really know anymore what is good and what is not. Um, but it pushed his disciples to figure out what they were going to decide was actually good. What is good? And so he inspired a lot of a lot of the great philosophers 
were, disi were disciples of Plato. So you have people like the Epicureans, you have the Stoics, you have, um, where is my list? Uh, Epicureans, Stoics, Sophists, Philo, no, those aren't necessarily his disciples. Um, he inspired a lot of disciples anyways, we'll just leave it at that. Um, one of them being Plato. And Plato really set himself out from the others. Um, he was a disciple of, of uh, Socrates, lived from 429 to 348. Um, and he really looked for an absolute truth. He believed that Socrates was pushing him towards an absolute truth. There is a truth that exists out there. Um, and what he ended up believing is that, and there's some discussion about whether this was Socrates that believed this or whether this was Plato interpreting Socrates, there is absolute truth. There is absolute good. There is absolute perfection. And this world is a mere shadow of another world. In another world, there's absolute truth. In another world, there's absolute perfection. Um, so a way that we could illustrate this, just imagine a circle. So as I say that, all of you guys are thinking about a circle in your mind. Um, can you think in nature where a circle exists? You might be thinking of um, the sun or a flower. Now I ask you the question, does a perfect circle exist? Are any of these things actually a perfect circle? Well, a sunflower has you know imperfections. The sun itself is not perfectly round. Um, <clears throat> these things aren't perfect circles. So if, if a perfect circle doesn't exist in the world, why do we all have this idea in our head of a circle? And we use this idea in our head to, you know, understand the world. Um, so he said, basically, look, if, if we have this idea, but it doesn't exist in the world, it must have come from another world. Um, and so you can have more about that in uh, the podcast on Plato. Um, but it was really important because he was drawing people to think about um it was basically monotheism there is absolute truth there is absolute goodness there is one one unity of thought and so this this really pushed philosophy forward in leaps and bounds that because before you had such disparate um it was your truth and my truth your good my good whatever's good is good and now plato pushes society forwards to where no, there's actually one good. There is absolute truth. So let's have the discussion about what is absolute truth and what it isn't. Aristotle was the disciple of Plato. And um, the big difference between Aristotle and Plato is that Aristotle too was looking for absolute truth. Um, but Plato thought that we could get to absolute truth through contemplation, through thinking, through meditation, even his disciples more and more went towards religion or through, or, or to, you know, kind of some sort of a spiritual way of getting to absolute truth. Whereas Aristotle is known as the father of science because he said we can get to the absolute truth, say for example, the circle example that we're using. We can figure out what the perfect circle is by looking at imperfect circles. And we get enough imperfect circles, we can see behind them to what the real circle ought to be. Um, and so you can see how this became, you know, the beginnings of science, looking at using the patterns of nature to understand the larger concepts, larger patterns of nature to work towards, you know, actually understanding truth. Um, and he was the tutor of somebody very important, Alexander the Great.
All right, so let's talk about Alexander the Great. Probably most of you guys have heard about him. Um, it's kind of a household name even today. He conquered the known world in 12 and a half years, believe it or not. Um, he is reported to have wept when his father won a major battle as he was still a kid because he said, that's one less co country that I can conquer once I'm king. And um, yeah, once he got on the throne, he just took off um, and uh, he conquered the whole known world all the way from his home base in Greece, uh, conquered the dominant uh, Persian Empire and went down to North Africa, conquered Egypt, um, and then went east all the way over um, to North North India and actually was starting to penetrate into India. And that's where he was, uh, he got sick with something, forget what exactly, but then he ended up dying, uh, came back and died in Babylon, uh, 12 and a half years after he started his conquest. So uh, he died at the age of 33, it's actually younger than I am, believe it or not. Um, so, and his his influence is still felt to this day because, as I mentioned, he was discipled, but or he was his tutor. He had a private tutor who was Alexander the Great, or he who was um, uh, Aristotle was his private tutor. So Aristotle was really able to. Um, I mean, I'm sure he gave him a stellar education, but also he really just instilled in him certain principles, um, what we might call humanism or. Um, the idea of the importance of, of the individual, as well as Greek philosophy, as well as a certain way of, of looking at the world scientifically, as well as um, the importance of democracy and other things, although democracy didn't really take on right away. Um, but as he, as he went and conquered everywhere, he became, I hate to use the word, but a missionary of Greek culture. Um, and in some places he imposed it, uh, you know, kind of militarily. But in a lot of places, he just encouraged his soldiers to, you know, uh, to diffuse the culture as best they could. Um, and uh, so after his death, um, Greek, the Greek language kind of became the world language. Greek culture kind of became the global culture. Um, and uh, the Greek philosophy really became a global phenomenon. He died, and we'll we'll pick that up as, as we go more about what some of these things mean, um, especially when we talk about Judaism and their resistance to Greek culture. So um, he died before he had uh, any, uh, before he had a, um, an heir. Uh, he died at 33. He had just married uh, an Indian princess. Uh, this is from India, not from North America, obviously, um, an Indian princess. And uh, they had a young son. But uh, he died kind of at the height of his power and at the height of, of the, the power of his army. And so uh, it was really his four generals that uh, divided up his empire. And really, it was kind of, it was very unfortunate, very, I mean, for the people at the time, it was very unfortunate. Uh, because he really united the whole known world under one empire. There, there was a potential for, you know, a golden age of peace and prosperity. But instead, uh, the empire ended up being divided in four and then there were hundreds of years of civil war between these four factions. Um, and we'll talk more about that when we get to the next podcast about Jerusalem and how they were kind of caught in the middle between Syria and Egypt. So then we'll talk about um, the rise to power of Rome. Um, in 202 before Jesus Christ, before 202 BC, 
they finally beat Hannibal. We know of Hannibal because of cannibalism for some reason. Whenever I type Hannibal into Google search, I get something about some stupid movie about cannibals. But anyways, Hannibal was not a cannibal as far as I know. Uh, just rhymes with it. Um, and uh, But anyways, Hannibal was uh, an amazing general in Carthage, which is North Africa. Um, and him, I mean, Carthage in North Africa and Italy in Europe, you can think how Italy sticks down like a boot into the Mediterranean. And then Carthage was a part of North Africa that kind of shoots jets out into the Mediterranean as well. And those two, although they were on two different continents, weren't all that far from each other uh, across the Mediterranean. And they had been vying for power over the Mediterranean for, um, for many, many years. Uh, and Hannibal finally marched an army uh, around, across North Africa, over to the west, in, uh, crossed over in Spain and then marched up through Spain and then across the Swiss Alps and then into Italy from the north uh, and attacked um, and unprepared uh, Italy um, and was able to rampage back and forth and, and really cause a lot of damage. Uh, it seemed as though he would be victorious, but then Rome sailed across and conquered Carthage. Uh, and so he had to march his people all the way back, go across the mountains, go across Spain, go all the way to Carthage, and then he lost um, as he was trying to regain his city. So 202, long story short, uh, Rome conquered Carthage, they conquered Hannibal. They were the undisputed um, superpower now in the Mediterranean and the rest of the world. Um, kind of the, the four generals after Alexander the Great, the four great Greek generals were kind of descending, declining in power. And so once Rome conquered Carthage, they were um, they were the superpower, um, and they were really unstoppable uh, between 200 before Jesus Christ and 100 after. Um, they kept on being, uh, it was 470, 476, I think, uh, when Rome finally fell. Uh, so, you know, they were still around, and even even for many hundred years after that, yeah, 4, 476 was the fall of Rome. Um, the Roman Empire was around, but really their their golden age was 100 before Jesus Christ and 200 up to 200 after. This was when they really held, you know, kind of an iron fist over the Mediterranean, over the known world. And during that time, um, we historians have coined the, the term Pax Romana. Pax meaning peace, Romana obviously meaning um, Roman. So this was a time when uh, the dominance of Rome uh, created an, uh, a time of relative peace and stability across the Roman Empire, across the known world. Uh, this was a time when um, travel was easy uh, because uh, Rome did had a zero tolerance, zero tolerance policy for any pirates in the Mediterranean. Uh, had a you know clamp down on any any highway bandits. They built good roads uh, to march their armies here, there, and everywhere to defend their borders. Uh, so, so travel was really easy. You could get from Jerusalem out to Galatia, you know, down to Alexandria, up all the way to Britain. Um, you could make that trip. And yes, there's dangers associated with that, but it was very possible to do that, those sorts of voyages at the time. As well, it was a time... Um, of peace and with peace comes prosperity trade 
Um, I should say with peace and with travel come trade and with trade comes usually prosperity. Um, and so this was a really fantastic time. Um, and then along with that comes education. This was a time when there was tremendous amount of literature written, tremendous amount of um, just intellectual development um, and uh, a lot of um, what we're going to see after the Middle Ages, a lot of people, what kind of propelled society forward was going back to this time in history uh, to see some of the great works that were written by Cicero and by um, by Seneca and you know even by Augustine and, and by other authors. So it was a really great time to be alive. Um, as well, um, there's my verse in Galatians somewhere it says that um, when the time was completed or when the time was perfect, uh, God sent his son born of a virgin, etc. That God really chose the ideal time in history, right, right smack dab in the middle of the, the Roman peace. Um, and that's when he dropped his son into Roman, into human history. Um, and it was a, a tremendous time for the gospel to go forward when travel was easy. It's a tremendous time for the first Christians to write theology and try and figure out the Christian faith when, you know, they had access to education, access to books. Um, and, uh, when it was possible to have, you know, schools and seminaries and, and, uh, intellectual debate. So it was a tremendous time. All right, so last guy I want to talk about um, before we wrap this up is Julius Caesar, 100 uh, before Christ to 44 before. Um, so Rome had been governed. They, they followed Athens eventually in uh, establishing a democracy uh, of a sort. Uh, they had a Senate, and the Senate was elected officials, um, but it wasn't quite the same sort of democracy as Athens, um, but it was a similar sort of a thing. They didn't have one leader. They had, you know, a group of people that governed the people. But uh, the Senate had a right now and then to appoint one leader um, to be the guy in charge during um, a rocky season, during a war or during a time of, um, of uh, uncertainty. And so they, they were having a hard time. I forget exactly what was happening, if there were wars or whatever, but... Um, at a certain time, they appointed Julius Caesar, who was a, a general, um, to be this, the emperor over the Roman Empire. Um, and so Julius Caesar was appointed by the Senate. And the thing about being appointed is you kind of have full authority when you're appointed. And so one of his things that he decided to do, uh, having the full authority, is to make himself emperor for life. Well, the Senate didn't like that. That wasn't part of the deal as far as they were concerned. He was just supposed to help them to get through this rocky patch, and then they would get, he, would, he was supposed to give the power back to the Senate. Um, and so the Senate, uh, after many plots and, and um, uh, much backroom um, espionage and everything, uh, they ended up assassinating Julius Caesar, in part by his friend. And uh, one of my students said it was his son. I'm not sure. But uh, famously, it was Brutus that also was in on this, and supposedly uh, Caesar's last words were, not you too, Brutus. Um, and anyways, it's much mythologized, uh, some of these events. Um, so uh, the Senate was happy, they got rid of Julius Caesar, but the people were very sad. The people 
liked Caesar more than they liked the Senate because he was decisive, he was clear, he was, um, it was a better leadership. Um, and so they started, there, were, there was a poet that wrote a whole poem about uh, how Julius Caesar, um, you know, it was so tragic that he got killed and everything like this. And, um, and now he's a god, he's with the rest of the gods. And, and uh, supposedly there was an eagle that flew up from his burial, his, um, what do they call it when they burn a corpse? Um, funeral pyre. And they said that that eagle was his soul going up to be with the gods. So anyways, after his death, he was worshipped as a god. Um, and uh, also after his death, um, there was a series and a succession of emperors. Um, and from then on, the norm was for an emperor to rule over the Roman Empire. So one of my students asked me as I taught this, well, does that mean that was the end of democracy? Um, yes, but no. Uh, so the Senate still had a lot of power. And so the emperors needed to do this sort of a dance because the Senate had a lot of power. The Senate named the next emperor. Um, but the emperor then had to deal with the Senate and, and they had power and he had power. Uh, and so and it wasn't always clear exactly how, well, it's not clear to me anyways, how that, that power worked. Um, but yes, the, the emperor was, you know, the like a king, like an absolute, you know, uh, dictator or absolute ruler, but there was also the Senate that that had a very important amount of power as well, and so he kind of like well, it's very similar to the American system because the American system is patterned after the Roman system, that there's the president that's elected, um, and he is technically the top guy in charge, um, but that doesn't mean that the president can do anything that he wants. The Senate can reject a bill it can reject it can block some of his political uh, ambitions if uh, it it thinks that he's acting in a, in a way that doesn't benefit the state um, so you know that existed at that time as well all right so um, let's back up and look at some of the major um, major people we talked about socrates plato aristotle Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Um, those were kind of the major people during this time. Uh, some of the major writings. Uh, Homer was a blind poet that wrote the Iliad and the Odyssey. Uh, and those were the major collections of uh, Greek mythology. Plato wrote a bunch of works. Probably his most famous one is The Republic, uh, which is an important source for for understanding his philosophy and also for defending um the democratic system. Aristotle as well wrote tons and tons of books. I just grabbed the metaphysic. It's not even his most important one, I don't think, but it's it's the one I'm familiar with. Um, very important author as well. Some of the major ideas in this time were philosophy or science against religion. Uh, I talk about this in the podcast um, Religion. I think I just call it religion versus science, but I ended up saying that really it's about uh, revelation versus investigation. Two different ways of finding truth. And this is what the Western world is kind of wrestling with. How do we find truth? Uh, do we find it from religion, from priests, from you know people that say they have a vision from God or have some revelation? Or do we find it through science, through investigation, through first principles, through you know, thinking about it. 
So this was kind of some of the tensions of the day, starting with Thales, who started um, started philosophy, uh, really sparking up with the the death of Socrates being a real flashpoint between uh, religion and science or religion and philosophy. Um, a search for absolute truth. Um, so Plato would say there, there's we come from a world of forms where there is a form of the good which is absolute truth. Um, Aristotle would say it's in this world that we find absolute truth. If we apply certain categories and certain ways of investigating the world, uh, we're going to be able to find the principles and the laws that govern this world. Or is it in religion? Um, I closed out this class uh, by just asking the students a few questions. First of all, is there going to be dirt in heaven? And this was kind of confusing because the word dirt doesn't translate well into French. Um, but is there going to be dirt in heaven? Uh, and I pose that question to you. Take a minute to think about it. Um, and the students, unfortunately, were far too biblical for me. Um, they said, yes, there will be dirt in heaven because there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Um, you look at the end of Revelation it says that heaven comes down to earth and God's dwelling place is now with man um, and now yes there will be dirt in heaven that's what the tree of life is growing in um, and uh, yeah but sometimes throughout the church of the the history of the church because we've been very influenced by Greek thought um, sometimes as people talk about heaven it almost seems like we're leaving the earth behind, we're leaving our bodies behind. The only thing that is going to be up there is just our spirits and we're just going to be singing and we're just going to be praising God, and which is true. We are going to be singing and praising God. But it's almost as though it's just, you know, ghosts. It's just like spiritual entities that are just floating up in a, in a great light um, and are kind of up there intertwining with each other and with God and kind of, you know, up in the clouds sort of thing. Um, and that's a very Greek way of looking at the afterlife. Uh, Greeks didn't believe in the resurrection of the body. Uh, they didn't want the body to be resurrected. The body is bad. The matter, matter is bad. Spirit is good. And so they wanted to be freed from their bodies so they could be, you know, spiritual and they could return to the world of the forms. Um, remember reading Romans 8. 10 to 11. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I've had this Bible for like 13 years. And so it's kind of funny because I still have the exclamation mark and question mark that I scribbled in next to that verse the first time I, it really stood out to me. Um, because I read, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. And I was just thinking, like, why would I want that? I, I'm so sick of this body. I don't want this body. It's, it's full of passions and, and, and temptations. And it's, you know, it's ugly. <laughs> you know, I had bad self-image at the time. You know, I'm too fat. I'm too pimply and whatever. I don't want this body. I want to just be free of this body and free of all the passions. It's just able to, to think and worship and be with God. Um, but the Jewish vision of the afterlife was very much a bodily resurrection. Very much that our bodies will be resurrected to live in a perfect life 
in a perfect world where the lion will lie down with the lamb, where every man will sit under his fig tree or under his vine and, you know, uh, where the world will be full and will produce its best and we will enjoy all that. Okay, so that's just one one way that um, um, sometimes our Christian theology can be influenced by Greek philosophy. Uh, another question is uh, sex and sexuality. Is it always dirty, bad, evil? Most of us right now uh, would probably say no, that sex you know, within marriage is pure and good and holy. But throughout the history of the church, and even right up to recently, even honestly sometimes today, um, we have this sort of a notion that sex is dirty and bad, um, even in marriage. And uh, some thinkers through it, I mean, Augustine, we'll get to him in a bit, but he actually believed that sex was a sin. Well, Tertullian too, we'll get to him before that, believed that sex in marriage was a sin. And Augustine believed that... Um, well, Tertullian was married, so jumping back and forth between these two. Tertullian was married, but he believed that it was unholy to have married, have married, married sex. Um, and so he didn't have sex with his wife, um, you know, for all the time that they were married, which was a long time because he lived a good old age. Um, and, and Augustine as well um, believed that sex, even in marriage, was wrong. And so he wasn't, he was a single guy. Um, but he taught that it was a sin, but it was a venial sin. It was a small sin uh, that you could be forgiven of. Very different from how Jews would look at it. Jews would see it as sex is a beautiful gift from God. It's, you know, his first first thing he said to Adam and Eve was be fruitful and multiply. Um, it's not a sin at all. It's not bad at all. It's good. Um, and so this is another way that um, Greek thinking has kind of crept into um the way that we approach theology in the church. Now, as you hear this, you might be thinking, well, why why even bother with Greek philosophy? Why even bother with um, Plato and Aristotle and people like that? Let me just give you a quick example of um, a way that, one small example of how philosophy could be useful. So if I ask you the question, uh, this chair, just imagine I have a wooden chair next to me. I could say, what caused this chair? And you might say right away, um, well, the carpenter built it. All right, so that's one cause. Let me just pause this and get the right terminology. Okay, so that's, that's you know the person that made it. But hold on a second. He didn't make it out of thin air. What was there before him? Well, there was some material. All right, so we got materials and we got a builder. What else was there? Are there other things that caused the chair? Well, when you start to think about it more, you realize, well, there was a blueprint, there was a plan, there was some idea in somebody's mind. All right, so you have the the idea of the chair, you have the materials, and you have the builder. Is there a fourth cause? And this is where students start scratching their head and thinking and thinking. And the fourth is a little bit more abstract, but the fourth is the final cause or the the ultimate reason perhaps to sell it or, you know, as art or um, something, you know, so that I could sit on it um, is the final cause of the chair. So this is Aristotle's famous fourfold fourfold causation. Uh, You have the uh, material cause, the wood, the efficient cause is the builder, the formal cause is the blueprint, and the final cause is so that I can sit on it, right? So Aristotle comes up with this 500 years before 
before Christ. Um, and Christians come along that have been to school, they've learned Aristotle, and they're reading the Bible. And do you think that this fourfold method would be useful for, for example, studying creation? Wow, sure. I mean, point one, point two, point three, point four, all the ways that God created, you know, the world, the um, material cause, what God spoke, and it was, you know, He created out of nothing, ex nihilo, the efficient cause. What was the um, the agency? Who made creation? Well, God did. Uh, what was the formal cause? Well, God had an idea in his mind of what creation was going to be. So perhaps that was the word, the logos, um, was uh, the formal cause. And the final cause was, you know, to bring God glory. So you can see just in explaining that, well, those are great categories that, that lifts our, our intellect, that, that lifts our ability to think great thoughts about what God did or, or, or how to define what he did better. You can see how that would come into the church, how we could use that, and even how that could make really great theology. You could imagine writing perhaps a great theology paper about the fourfold cause of creation through Aristotle's uh, categories. Um, but along with using Aristotle and Plato and some of these other guys, come some of the temptations to also view life through their lens, that the spirit is better than the body, that, um, you know, nature is uncreated, that, um, you know, the human is, like the, the emphasis on humanism, that the human is more important um, than, uh, than God, or, or viewing the world through a secular lens. So anyways, I hope that that kind of gives you a little bit of a primer on what was happening in the world between um, about the Babylonian captivity and the time of Jesus. And uh, that'll lay this, that'll set the stage a little bit for getting more in depth with um, the Jewish people and the Maccabees and uh, the others who resisted the influence of Greek culture into their lives. So I hope you'll stay tuned and that podcast will come out next week. If you'd like to give to this ministry, you can do so by going to josiahmeyer.com, clicking on the Give Now button, and you can give safely and securely there and get a tax-deductible receipt. Thank you so much for your gift to this ministry. I could not continue without you. Have a good day. Bye.